Happy Sunday, church family and friends. I want to thank you for joining us for our weekend podcast. Uh, We're going to be starting a new series today. And as I'm recording this podcast, I'm looking out the window and there is snow coming down. Uh, It's a good weekend or at least a good day to stay indoors. Now, by Sunday or into next week, there probably won't be any snow left. But it's a good time to grab a good cup of coffee and grab a good book and do something that you enjoy indoors. A favorite pastime in our house is building with Legos. Now, for all of our listeners today, you know, chances are you have you know, kids, grandkids, relatives that love to play with Legos, or maybe you yourself grew up playing with Legos as a kid. Uh, my boys have always loved Legos. In fact, I can't remember a time when we didn't have Legos somewhere in the house. You know, Legos are a fun toy. They're a great pastime. And I love that my kids will get started on a project, and then an hour or two later, hundreds of little pieces have been put together in just the right way. And the final product is this functioning, usable toy that they can get several hours of enjoyment out of. That is, until one of the other brothers inevitably destroys it. And this happens every time. Yeah, I personally have a love-hate relationship with Legos. On one hand, I love to see the creativity that building with them brings out of my kids. That's a joy to see. On the other hand, I absolutely hate, I mean hate with a passion, that every time we ask them to clean up, uh, several individual Lego pieces magically get strategically placed around the house in the exact spots that my wife and I step. Man, I don't know if there's anything worse than stepping barefoot on a Lego. You probably can relate. Well, in our house, when Lego pieces don't make it back into the correct bin after being played with, you know, there's always at least one upset kid who can't find that one piece that's needed to finish a project the next time around. Now, part of the reason for this is if I step on a Lego, uh, that Lego's new home is in the trash, not in the bin that it belongs in. But in all seriousness... You know, it's never fun to not be able to finish a project because you're missing just one or two pieces. That's a great way to change the course of a good day. Ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden and sin entered the world, humans have been like a Lego project with a missing piece. And like my boys and their Legos, it's easy to spend so much time trying to find that one missing piece, often settling for something that doesn't quite fit. You know, Lego sets, especially the boxes that come with the instructions for a specific project, they include the exact right pieces that are meant to fit together in a specific way. A person can spend a lifetime trying to find that one missing piece that will fill or complete their life. But in the end, friends, there's only one thing that can fill it. There's only one right piece. Today we're going to begin a new series called Follow Me. And over the next three weeks, we're going to focus in on three stories in God's word where Jesus revealed important truths as he had these incredible encounters with unlikely people. Now, through these encounters, we're going to be reminded that Jesus is the one piece or the one person who can truly make a life whole. We're also going to learn that Jesus's invitation to know and follow him is for all people. I think it'll become clear pretty quickly that God often uses the people um, that we least expect. 
Our first message in this new series comes from John's Gospel. Now, when you open your Bible to the New Testament, so we have the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, you'll first come to the book of Matthew, uh, then Mark, Luke, and then you'll come to John. Now, today we're going to be in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30. Now, this is a little bit longer of a passage, and because of this, um, we're going to read it in five sections. This first section will provide some context for what it is we're reading, and then the last four will give us the application as we learn more about this incredible and unlikely encounter that Jesus had. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 1. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. So a little bit of context for what we're reading today. Um, We're early on in Jesus' ministry. Uh, At this point, um, he has a small group of disciples. He's already performed his first miracle at a wedding in Canaan. This was turning water into wine. And he had cleansed the temple because people were selling cattle, sheep, doves, and they were exchanging foreign money. Now, we're actually going to come back to that story uh, before Easter. A lot of the religious nutjobs will call them Pharisees, they already knew who Jesus was, and they weren't happy about what he was doing. So Jesus decided to leave Judea and head back to Galilee. And on his way back, he went through a place called Samaria. Now, there were three common routes that a person could have taken uh, to get from Judea to Galilee. And for a Jew like Jesus, going through Samaria was the route most often avoided, You see, the Samaritans were a mixed race of people. They were part Jew and part Gentile. They were actually rejected by the Jews because they couldn't prove their genealogy. They couldn't prove where they came from. Now, this rejection led to a very real racial and cultural conflict between the two groups. And because of this, the Samaritans decided to build their own temple. They actually held their own uh, worship services at a place called Mount Gerizim. And doing this only further fan the flames of prejudice and hate between the two groups. Now, there's a lot of reasons why these two groups hated each other so much, but one reason is because the Jews destroyed the Samaritan temple around 128 B.C., and then the Samaritans returned the favor by scattering human bones at the Jerusalem temple during Passover. And we believe this was sometime around A.D. 6 and and A.D. 9, somewhere in between there. So by Jesus' day, it's safe to say there was a lot of tension that existed between Judea and Samaria, between the Jews and the Samaritans. So the question has to be asked, why would Jesus take the road through Samaria? Well, it's because he had a divinely appointed schedule to keep. Traveling through Samaria would take him through a particular village that was near a field that Jacob, this is Old Testament Jacob, had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And tired from a long walk, Jesus would have a divine yet unlikely encounter with a Samaritan woman at the well. Let's keep reading. We'll pick up in verse 7 and we'll read through verse 10. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus told her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. 
The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. If you happen to be taking notes, the first point that I'd like to touch on today is this, that the Samaritan woman knew that Jesus was a Jew. Why is this an important truth? We've already talked about the disdain between Jews and Samaritans, but in Jesus' day, it was also considered improper for a man, especially a Jewish rabbi, which just means teacher, um, to speak to a strange woman in public. But already, Jesus was setting aside what was socially acceptable because an individual's eternal salvation was at stake. See, this Samaritan woman was completely taken back. I would say she was even confused when Jesus started talking to her. You can almost hear it in her voice when she responds to Jesus in verse 9. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? I think her question was a valid one. You know, why would Jesus, a man, a Jew, and a rabbi, want to use the Samaritan's well to get a drink, especially when there were plenty of other options between Judea and Galilee? Well, verse 10 actually gives us the answer. Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Jesus' request for physical water was simply a way to open the door to conversation. It provided an opportunity for him to share the truth about this living water. When Jesus approached a stranger in public, and he did this quite often, he never needed or used a fancy sales pitch. You see, he always took the time to engage in conversation, often highlighting something that he had in common with the person whom he was speaking to. In this case, they were both at Jacob's well to get physical water. Jesus was thirsty, and that's one of the reasons he went to the well. But Jesus knew that this woman needed so much more than just physical water. At the end of verse 10, Jesus points out that um, she was actually missing three important truths. One, who he really was. At this point, she believed he was just a Jewish man, maybe maybe a rabbi, a teacher. Two, what he had to offer. She went there for physical water, and Jesus is offering her something so much more. And three, how she could receive it. You see, she doesn't know it yet, but this was the eternal God speaking to her, offering her eternal life. Apparently, what Jesus was saying uh, piqued her interest because she decided to continue the conversation. We'll pick up in verse 11 and read through verse 15. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. The second point that I'd like to talk about today is that the Samaritan woman confused the material and the spiritual. She confused the material and the spiritual. See, Jesus was talking about spiritual water. 
eternal life. She interpreted his words to mean literal water. We actually see this several times throughout the New Testament. People often confuse the material and the spiritual. It's also important to point out that this woman was primarily concerned about how Jesus would obtain this water instead of simply asking him to give her a drink. She heard what he had to say, but it still didn't quite compute. Right? It, didn't, it didn't register what he was talking about. So she started going through the list of things that are usually needed to, to work and obtain physical water. She started talking about a rope, and the rope would need to be long enough to go all the way down into the well. She talked about a bucket, the, the right size bucket that uh, would be used to gather the water. She also doubted that Jesus could offer better water than what she could get from Jacob's well. Now, she wasn't trying to be rude. I think she was just responding in reverence, uh, in reverence to the sacred traditions that were attached to this well. But still, she failed to recognize that she was in the presence of someone who is greater than Jacob and greater than the well itself, uh, someone who could provide the kind of living water that she really needed. I really like how Warren Wearsby paraphrases Jesus' response in this portion of the scripture, um, specifically uh, verses 13 and 14. So this is Warren Wearsby's uh, paraphrase of what Jesus is saying. Whosoever continues to drink of this material water or anything the world has to offer will thirst again. But whoever takes one drink of the water I give will never thirst again. Friends, how true is it that the things of this world never completely satisfy? You know, trying to find fulfillment in worldly things, whether it's money, material possessions, um, earthly relationships, sex outside of marriage, your job, vacations, you know, whatever it is for you, you can fill in the blank. These things never completely satisfy. These things are temporary. They're not eternal. But Jesus says, those who drink the water that I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. You see, what Jesus has to offer does satisfy. It brings real fulfillment and real purpose to a person's life. Jesus is the missing piece to the Lego project. Only he can make it complete. Only he can make a life whole. This part of the passage talks about eternal life. And life is one of the key concepts in John's gospel. Actually, this word is used at least 36 times. Throughout his gospel, we're reminded that Jesus is the bread of life that Jesus is the light of life, and that Jesus gives us the water of life. The Samaritan woman once again heard Jesus' response, and this time she decides to ask for this gift, even though she still didn't quite understand what he was talking about. She was making progress, for sure, in understanding who Jesus is and what he was talking about when he spoke about living water, but she still had a long ways to go. And this is where the passage becomes difficult. It's difficult for what we see happening um, in her life for sure. Um, it's healthy but difficult. And it's difficult and challenging as we apply it to our lives as well. You see, Jesus decides to move past surface-level conversation and address the real need. Um, let's pick up in verse 16, and we'll read through verse 24. Jesus said, Go and get your husband. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man that you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. 
So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The third point that I'd like to address today is this, that the Samaritan woman had a spiritual need that had to be addressed. A spiritual need that had to be addressed. What we see in this part of the passage is exactly what we experience in our own lives as well. You know, the only way the soil of the heart can be prepared for the seed of truth that God wants to plant is for God to plow it up with conviction. And friends, that can often be painful. That's why Jesus told the woman to go and get her husband. He forced her to admit her sin. I think this is one of the most important parts of today's message. And we need to be reminded that there's no conversion without conviction. And there's no forgiveness without repentance. God's word is extremely clear that there must be conviction and repentance. And then there can be saving faith. Jesus definitely got her mind thinking and her emotions stirring. But he also had to touch her conscience. And that meant dealing with her sin. In verse 17, she responds to Jesus Um, with the shortest phrase, the shortest response that we see in this entire passage. She said, I don't have a husband. I think this is the shortest response because she was experiencing conviction and was beginning to understand that she had given her life over to sin and to things that can only temporarily satisfy. Friends, please understand that going through this process with Jesus was the best thing that could have happened in her life. And it's the absolute very best thing that can happen in our lives as well. Unfortunately, instead of listening to Jesus at this point, um, she tried to get him to go on a detour. She did that by talking about other things, you know, specifically the differences between the Jewish and the Samaritan religions. And we do this as well. You know, God helps us recognize the sin in our lives. And because that's often painful, we try to change the subject. You know, we try to change the channel because we don't like what we're seeing. But God wants to help us recognize these things. He wants to help us recognize them, but we also have to be willing to deal with them, or more accurately, allow God to deal with them. It's a lot more comfortable to talk about religion, or anything else for that matter, than to deal with the sin in our lives. God isn't concerned about how comfortable we are. No, he he desires holiness in our lives. His, His end goal, his ultimate goal, is to make us more like Jesus. And trying to avoid the issue at hand we see that the Samaritan woman um, didn't really know who to worship. She didn't really know where to worship or even how to worship. She, You could say she was spiritually ignorant when it came to these things. And in his response, Jesus made it very clear that not all religions or acts of worship are equally acceptable before God. If we look back to verses 23 and 24, um, Jesus says, But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father, that's the who, Um, In spirit and in truth, that's the how. He says the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. 
for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The Samaritan woman, she was primarily concerned about where to worship instead of focusing on who and how she should worship. Now, there's a statement here that's very important. The statement is, God is spirit. And this simply means that God is not made of any physical matter, but instead is everywhere present. Now, this is an important attribute of God, that God is everywhere present. Um, he's not everything. You know, he's the creator. He created everything. But God is everywhere present. And that reminds us that worship isn't about the location. You know, it should never be confined to just one place. And that's what she was concerned about. True worship is more about who we worship and how we worship. Jesus said true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. This statement simply means that true worship happens when God's spirit reveals God's truth to the worshiper. And what the Samaritan woman is about to realize is that Jesus Christ is that truth. Jesus is the Messiah. Let's continue reading. Uh, We'll pick up in verse 25 and read through verse 30. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. The fourth and final point that I want to talk about is this, that the Samaritan woman believed that Jesus is the Messiah. She believed the truth. Even though she didn't quite understand what Jesus was talking about up to this point, there was one truth that she did know, and that was the Messiah was coming. Now, we don't know where she learned this truth from, but what we do know is this, that it had laid buried in her heart until that very moment, and now it was going to bear fruit. Jesus responded to her by saying, I am the Messiah. And actually, the most accurate translation here is, I that speak to thee, I am. At this point, she put her faith in Jesus. She believed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. This encounter had affected her life in such a way that she even left the very water that she'd come to collect as she ran back to the village to tell everyone about the living water she had found. Verses 28 through 30 says, The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. You see, the very first thing that she did was to go and tell others about Jesus, the man who told her everything she ever did. I, I can't help but recognize here that you know, she, she wasn't a pastor. She wasn't a Bible scholar. She wasn't a Sunday school teacher. She wasn't even a ministry leader in a church. She was a sinner who'd simply experienced living water. And now she couldn't help but share her story with others. And God used her simple testimony to reach most of the people in her village. The Bible says the people came streaming from the village to see him. I think that is highlighting. This was a big group of people. This was a stampede of people. The Samaritan woman, she didn't come to faith in Christ immediately. We have to recognize that. You know, Jesus was patient with her, and in doing so, 
sets a good example for us to follow in our own work for the Lord. And we should be patient with people. We have to realize that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's in his timing. It's also important to recognize that she was an unlikely candidate for salvation, at least in the world's eyes. Yet God used her in a big way. And what a great reminder for us today that God often uses the people we least expect. Let me say that again, because I I struggle with this, especially when there's difficult people in my life. God often uses the people we least expect. Maybe you could insert, God often uses the difficult people you'd least expect. Or the people you don't get along with. Or the people that you don't like very much. God can do anything. The Bible says nothing is impossible with God. Well, I have three short truths that uh, you can take with you, you can apply to your own life from this passage today. These are going to be very brief, and I'd like to wrap up the message this way. Number one, God knows your past, but loves you anyway. God knows your past, but loves you anyway. It's important that we remember John 3.16 and Romans 5.8. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, that's the gospel in a verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, we were unlikely candidates for salvation. It's while we were still sinners, while we were at our very worst, that's when Christ demonstrates his own love for us. That's when he sent his son and Christ died for us. You see, God loves you in spite of your past, but he loves you enough not to leave you that way. And the invitation here is to follow him. And in doing so, we're transformed from the inside out, being made more into the image of Christ. The second thing is this, that nothing except Jesus can fill the empty gap in your life. You know, when my kids try and force a Lego piece to fit that was never meant to fit, the final project just doesn't look right. It doesn't function properly. That's a reminder to us that temporary fixes are just that. They're temporary. You know, if you've been searching for that one thing, I urge you to look to Jesus. Nothing except Jesus can fill the empty gap in your life. Number three, an encounter with Jesus produces a changed life. An encounter with Jesus produces a changed life. I don't know where you're at in your faith journey. But the invitation to believe, the invitation to receive living water is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. The invitation to believe in Jesus, to repent of sin, to be baptized into Christ, and to experience new life is still available today. My question for you is this. Would you drink the living water, the kind of water that only Jesus can provide? I know you're listening through the podcast this week. Um, But here at our physical location, our baptistry is full. You know, if you say, I believe in Jesus, and you're ready to take that next step, I would would urge you to do so. That next step is baptism. And uh, the baptistry is full. We can schedule a time for you to come up and and be immersed into Christ. Um, We want to celebrate with you. We want to celebrate that decision. We also want to walk alongside you as brothers and sisters in Christ, holding each other accountable in our faith, encouraging one another building each other up. Well, friends, I'm excited about this series, and I hope you are too. We're going to clearly see this invitation to follow Jesus. We're going to see that through some seemingly unlikely encounters that Jesus had.